Pharma Ventures, the deal experts. Welcome to this edition of the Pharma Ventures podcast, where we're discussing the involvement of law and tax in deal making. My name is Adrian Dorks of Pharma Ventures. To talk about this today, I've got a couple of experts in the room with me, um, and they are... So I'm Colin McCool. I'm a partner at Taylor Wessing in our life sciences team, and I focus on collaborations, licensing deals, and also where it's relevant, the sort of the deferred consideration aspects of M&A deals. Perfect. And Colin, for, for the uninitiated, I'm sure there are many people who know Taylor Wessing. Uh, you're a law firm. That, you're, that's, yes, you're sorry, the legal we're, aspect we're of that, a law yeah. firm, yeah. yes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and also across the table is... Hello, I'm Ollie Pumphrey. Uh, I work at FCI Consulting and I do tax for life sciences companies. So everything from the routine compliance, R&D tax credits, through to the more complicated advisory work, around transactions and uh, IP licensing and a lot else besides. Great. I think it's fair to say that most people in our sector would probably appreciate they need somebody to do the deal, and that's sometimes somebody internal, and they'd probably recognise that at some point there's going to be a contract in, involved and it's got legal aspects to it, and therefore lawyers are important. But an area that people probably don't think about enough is is the tax aspects and we'll come to that that later in the conversation so maybe i can kick things off well well let's talk about when we each get to sort of meet the 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 principles in a deal um so the guys that actually want to do a deal and they they come to us because they need some help doing it and i think from our perspective at farm ventures we see people quite early on in fact you know, across the range, sometimes we see people who are way too early. Um, they think they're ready to do a deal, but they're not. And the, the not being ready can be a number of things, either because their programmes aren't advanced enough, but that doesn't mean we can't be helpful because there's a lot of things people need to think about on that path to being ready for a deal before they actually go out and do it. Or we, we see people who come to us and they might be at a point where it's feasible to, say, do a licence for licensing deal, for instance. We'll talk about licensing deals in the, in the first instance. Um, it's feasible because they've got an asset that's at the right stage of development, perhaps, and we kind of know there's an appetite out there. There are companies looking for these sort of things. And they'll say, can you go and find us a partner for this? And, of course, we'd love to say yes, um, but we'll do our diligence as well. But they sort of have this, and not everybody's, this is, but there is a perception out there that Maybe they've got to a point, they've got some great data, maybe they're in, say, phase one, um, they've got some first-in-man data, they've got maybe a little bit of a, an efficacy signal, they've got a preclinical data pack, and they go, look at all this great science, just get me a meeting with a CEO of GSK or, or J&J, and, and they're bound to want it because everybody thinks they're... Their asset is the best of the best, and, of course, they're, 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 everybody's just going to snap it up. And it's not quite like that, and... So this, this is from our perspective. Um, so what we like to encourage people to do is say, preparation's key. Um, if you're going to do a deal, don't just run out there and go, ta-da, look at my lovely data. Because people will say, well, yeah, it's lovely data. There's lots of other things you've thought about, have you thought about. And if you're not ready, you've, you've kind of, of blown cover before, before you're ready. And, and some of the things we've had to people is the moment you start talking to people, you are setting out value expectations because we're mostly about the deal value uh, and the, the the deal construct not the legal or the tax so if you're, you're having conversations with people and 
you've gone out too early with it where you're not prepped. There's a danger there that you'll start telling not stories, but but giving them the lay of the land, which which then doesn't maximise your value. So I guess my opening point here is. Is that unique to us? Is that do we see them, or, or Colin? Maybe I, you know you, you've got a comment on this, or do you see the same thing? In, in terms of licensing deals, quite often the first we'll hear about it is it, it may well be look at this term sheet we've got. Can you can you turn this into a into an agreement? And that's you know, that's obviously once they've they've either got their internal BD function talking with the BD the correct BD people within the you know the, the collaboration partner. Or they've already been talking to someone like Pharma Ventures to help them with that. That is quite a common point for us to become involved. However, similarly, we we do have a lot of other clients who we've got a long-standing relationship with, and they are saying to us, we have got this asset that we want to start out-licensing. And we, we work with companies all the way through the various different sort of stages of their life cycle. And so... In many cases, these companies don't have internal BD specialist function. And so they are sort of coming to us saying, what do we do in terms of, you know, we've got this asset, we want to do some deals because our backers are saying we need to do a deal in order to sort of validate the science and get us to the next inflection point for our next round. Can you help us? What do we, what do we need to do? And typically, we, you know, that's, that's not our field of expertise. And so we would need to send them to someone like Pharma Ventures um, to get some advice on how to start constructing that deal. Right. And I guess we take a similar stance. We will ask people that come to us and say we want to do a deal and having gotten to that that, um, point at which, okay, it's feasible to go out and start talking to people because we've got the story right. And so this is pre-term sheet or uh, pre-anybody showing interest. We always ask the question, okay, so do you you have a a, a law firm that's going to represent you? And sometimes they say no, and sometimes they say, well, well, like you do, say, actually, okay, so we know, we know some good lawyers, and Taylor Wessinger, of course, one of them, um, and we can connect you in, and that, that kind of works well. And sometimes they'll want a, well, I don't really know that side of it or what I'm doing, and I, but I think I've got a good position, and it, it may also relate to their IP. Is it reasonable for them to, for, for us and them to say, actually, can we just get half an hour? Can we just talk to these people for half an hour? Do you do that sort of thing? There's a perception out there that lawyers, as soon as you phone a lawyer up, they go, oh, just, I'll just start the meter. Is that? We'll absolutely spend half an hour with a with a company that we're not already engaged with. To, I mean, and similarly with a company that we're engaged with, if they're they're talking about doing a you know, a significant collaboration deal, absolutely we'll sort of be a sounding board you know, for for them on how to structure a deal or just to hear more about the deal that they're planning, just to sort of get a little bit more about you know, what what the plan is. Right. Um, and, yeah, the, the, you know, we wouldn't charge for that. But, I mean, similarly, interesting what, what, what you say about, you know, everybody knowing that you need a lawyer to help on these, uh, these contracts. I mean, I, there's a deal I'm working on at the moment where the other side seems to think they don't really need to have a, have a lawyer or, or, or indeed a specialist lawyer. And the trouble is that you know, that that does lengthen out the process of negotiating the deal. It's not as efficient as it would otherwise be, and ultimately ends up being more expensive for everybody, which is 
kind of what the other side is trying to avoid. Um, but but yeah, um, so, it, you know, even if it's not Taylor Wessing, there are other specialist law firms out there who do licensing deals. And so, you know, companies are well advised to make sure they've got one of those firms engaged to you know, assist on these deals because it does make things much more efficient. And, and it's not just about constructing the right deal with the right terms and the right contractual elements in it. You, you also presumably have to have an eye on the, the what-ifs of the future. An example I'm aware of, um, where I won't name names or anything, where there was a couple of parties where the, the CEOs knew each other and so they did a deal. They didn't need anybody to find them, so they didn't need a farm of ventures. And it, it, from what I remember, it sounded like they, they didn't involve lawyers an awful lot either because the, the, the deal was, let's say, somewhat crudely constructed. It served its purpose entirely because they got a deal done and it, it, it did enable a very successful drug to make it to market. But years later, there were events which unfolded which involved people looking at that contract and going well, wait a minute, this isn't right. The way this is written, we should have been getting more money for this on, on the royalty element. Uh, so you've seen that sort of thing too? Yeah, all the time. Um, and, and so you know, it, the collaboration phase is brilliant. You know, you, you kind of need not... You know, we're, we're coming here and we're collaborating. Yeah. You don't need an awful lot. To, you know, you, you, you're both driving towards the same thing and so that, you know, there's not an awful lot of drafting that is always that necessary to achieve that. It's just when people are deciding how much they're going to pay mm. ultimately um though you know if, if the product is successful there you know unless the financial terms are pretty clear or very clear then um there is you know ample scope for debate later on as to what is the correct amount to be paying mm -hmm. and with a very successful product the numbers that you'll be talking about at that stage are likely to be quite huge and so the incentive to have that debate, let's call it, is 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 almost certainly going to be there. Right. So so doing doing the best that you can right at the beginning when you're constructing the deal is it's probably going to serve you well later and probably avoid unnecessary expense and and <laughs> disappointment. Yeah, and 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 always with you know with licensing deals and the you know the consideration whether it's milestones, whether it's you know how many milestones on how many products or you know what what the royalty rate is and you know what is a licensed product on which you pay and for how long the the devil is always in the detail in in the drafting on that and um if you if it's not done by a lawyer that does these things all the time the scope for error is quite right right sound advice so Talking about the future, tax is kind of a future event. Most people that, you know, we, we do a lot with, with development stage assets and companies, small biotechs that um, probably aren't making profits until they've done a deal. So tax is kind of something that they think about if there's R&D tax incentives somewhere that they might be able to tap into. That's, that's I may be doing them a disservice. That's, it's not deal related. And when they get to the deal point, they're thinking, okay, right, now, now's the point we've done the work. We're going to set this deal up. Somebody's going to pay us an awful lot of money, maybe some of it in the future. And we don't get involved in the tax side of it at all. We just do the headline numbers and go, oh, the deal's worth hundreds of millions or a billion, whatever. And everybody smiles and it's all it's all happy. What about the tax, Ollie? I mean, when, when should they think? Should they think about it then when they've done the deal? Gun? So somebody's going to come after us now. What do we do? Or is it earlier? Now, I think I think there's um, going to be a lot of overlap with my experience and uh, experience on on the legal side that Colin's been through 
already. I think you mentioned earlier Jean, that, that sometimes people get in touch too early um, in terms of actually progressing things. I would always want to speak to people, and uh, even if they're thinking about something, you know, we can walk them through the sort of likely issues or considerations at an early stage, and that can happen really at any time at all. You don't have to be actively uh, progressing with a transaction to have that conversation. And again, you know, at FTI Consulting, we'd be more than happy to to, to spend half an hour, an hour to get people comfortable with some of those main issues. To think as you sort of enter that process of starting to do a deal uh, more actively, certainly at the heads of terms stage. So you know, I think you're right to, to say that people often aren't thinking about tax. It's not front of mind often, um, particularly in that, uh, in that transaction uh, uh, zone when the mindset is very much, I think, as you say, sort of there's excitement about getting a deal done and let's do it. Um, but really, you know, why are we doing deals? That doing them to to make some money out of them. Mm. And uh, tax is a is 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 clearly a big part of that. Um, and again, to echo what was already said on the legal side, you know, getting that right early on is only going to stand you in good stead in future and make sure you're not in for any nasty surprises down the line. That could be on a future sale of the company and someone comes along and does some tax DD and some prodding around things that could be when somebody starts uh, uh, to pay you some money but you're not getting as much as you thought because of this thing called withholding tax Um, so there's all sorts of things that can be addressed much earlier on um, at the heads of term stage when there is still when there's a good sense of what this deal is going to look like while still having room for maneuver um, and to negotiate around certain key parts. Is it more of an issue with, say, an M&A transaction, the acquisition of a company, and less with a licensing deal, or is it just as complicated or horrific as <laughs> in either way? I mean, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, withholding tax clause is a very common clause, almost like you'd, <laughs> you'd shoot your lawyer if it wasn't in there um, in, a, in a licensing deal. Typically what we see just in terms of the balance of bargaining power is that the the in-licensee or the farmer partner um, will typically say, well, if we have to withhold, we'll withhold. Mm. Um, uh, and then as parties, we'll, we'll just sit, sit, see if we can reclaim some of it and we'll work together to reclaim as much as we can based on double, tax tra- d- double taxation treaties that are in, in, in place at the time. But I'd be very interested to hear more about like, sort of how better to do that. Um, yeah, no, uh, you know, without getting sort of drawn into the weeds, I think you're keen to say that there are there are five key areas in a licensing deal when it comes to tax that we think about. And to answer your question directly, no, I don't think the tax is, is necessarily that much less complicated or there's any less at stake in a sort of IP licensing deal than there is in any any other, you know, any sort of uh, corporate corporate deal. So the, the areas we tend to look at are R&D tax credits, patent box in terms of whether the income that they're going to be receiving is going to be eligible um, for that uh, reduced tax rate, um, withholding tax, which we've, which we've touched on, um, the use of losses, because as you allude to, and you're quite right, that most of my clients uh, don't, make, don't make any money. <laughs> and so they often are sitting on losses that, might, that they might be able to use. And indirect tax, so VAT being the obvious one. Um, and if, there's a, you know, if there are any movements of, of, sort of goods or consumables cross-border. Now, particularly you know, on the tax side, the majority of, of licensing agreements we see are cross-border. And so I think that that 
instantly introduces more complexity um, from the tax side. But that's not to say that tax shouldn't be considered if it was a you know, purely sort of UK UK deal. So I think yes, there's there's certainly lots to think about, and I think. You, know, you you won't always have someone telling you that you need tax advice and it might not sort of, uh, you know, the issue might not rear its head until some years later, potentially. But I think there's always going to be tax and, um, you know, you're, you're going to want to understand the the accounting economic tax outcome of what you're doing because at the end of the day, that's you know, sort of why businesses are trying to do these deals. Yeah, you said it there. There's, there's three certainties, life tax and death and tax, isn't there? So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so one of the things we've spoken about before is you know, in, in some of these collaboration deals, there is an aspect of know-how transfer. And um, as part of that, the, you know, a, a licensor might seek to recover some of that in terms of FTE charges. And I think you, you, you've mentioned to me before that that is something that needs to be thought about from mm. a tax no, perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's that's a great example of a very sort of specific tax consideration that we would look at, whereby um, under the current R&D tax credit rules, and I caveat that because they're changing all the time and uh, will change again next year in 2024, any R&D activity that you're carrying out that is subsidised in any way financially by somebody else uh, falls out of the SME scheme if you are claiming under the SME into the far less generous RDEC, um, large company scheme, the R&D expenditure credit. And so that could be simply a case of of restructuring um, how that agreement is put together away from FT reimbursement and economically put the same amount into maybe an upfront. And so that's a a good example of the sort of thing that we would be looking at um, and considering in any sort of IP licensing tax review. You're listening to the Pharma Ventures podcast, where we're discussing the involvement of law and tax in deal making. Do you ever see instances where, say, somebody comes to either of you uh, from a, a, a less a less competent advisor than Pharma Ventures, shall we say, and you look at the term sheet and you go, "Oh no, this is horrible. Um, we need to start again." Does it, does that ever happen? <laughs> Probably less so in that instance, but. Quite often. So we, we do an awful lot in the spin-out space as well. And typically that is, um, you know, you'll have a term sheet that has been negotiated by an academic founder with, with a technology transfer office. And you know, the, the academic founder has never done this before. And the tech transfer office probably has. And so you, you'll quite often see a term sheet in those instances where you'll say, well, don't sign this just yet. Um, you perhaps there are a few things that we can sort of add to this to sort of make the whole thing a bit clearer mm. so that there aren't difficult discussions later on during the sort of the, the full form document negotiation and drafting. But yes, so, so that's all that lawyers can do once a term sheet has been signed because the term sheet is essentially the deal that, that, that the principals have done a handshake on. You can move things. I mean, that, you know, they are classically not binding, that was that was the point I was, I was going to yeah, raise. But we, it, but we it's talk just, about binding and non-binding. Yeah, but it's, 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 it, you, you need some very good reasons to move away from the terms in the term sheets because otherwise it's just seen as like, well, this is the deal. Yeah, this is the deal we've done. This it's not cricket to move away from. And when you say terms, do you just mean the financials or where things are placed? Because there, there's well, yes, it could be it, it could be the finance. It, it's almost always it's 
the financials. Yeah. Um, but but it can be risk allocation, other uh, you know, definitions around um, what is a licensed product. But again, that's probably more aligned to what is you know, ultimately that that affects the financials. So yeah, it, it is. It's generally speaking, the, the, there'll be bits in that term sheet that don't quite hang together, that do need some refinement and could do with some refinement. And if it's been signed, those refinements are, you know, if it's just refinement to make everything clearer, so you know nothing is actually changing, then those sorts of changes are fine. But if it actually, you know, some, somebody's missed out non non patent related royalty drop down. You know, the, the 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 rates on that typically you'd expect those to divide you know, to go down by a half if you know there's no patent covering the licensed product. Um, that sometimes is not in the right. term sheet. Similarly, a so an anti royalty stat clause, which is you know absolute boilerplate for a licensing deal, that might not be in the the term sheet. But both of those things do affect the financials. You might well get pushback saying, "Well, that wasn't we haven't." agreed that in the term sheet and like this is this is my financial model and this is what you know if if, if we change that the whole thing's broken and we need to fiddle with it in, in something else yeah so just to just to consider a couple of those points from a tax perspective i think we often when we see these uh these term sheets they've been through colin or someone similar already so we we, we don't see any sort of complete messes a couple of things that make us maybe take a deeper breath off from the other other country involved um some you know if it's if it's <coughs> india it's just going to be difficult um <laughs> the us unfortunately is can be quite difficult as well um and uh, not definitely not impossible many people do it and uh, it, it, you know it's can certainly all be done but we're we're generally sort of lucky on that on that on that front that it's sort of been been seen already I would just say that you know we we would also like to see the final agreement as well, just to be clear, and not just see it at the term term sheet stage because things often you know, will do do move. Do you sometimes or how frequently do you see somebody come with a term sheet and say, "Yeah, we've all agreed this," and then later on uh, they decide actually we want to do it differently. We don't want so much in these components. We want to put it over here. And does how often do you get that kind of behaviour? I'm thinking of some particular jurisdictions where people rush to a term sheet because they want a term sheet. Um, and then afterwards they go, oh, yeah, but that isn't really what I wanted. Um, I just wanted that because it got me to a particular point with maybe my investors or somebody else. They wanted to see a term sheet. So we did it to get it done, and then we want to kind of redo it. Does that happen much? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, there, there are negotiations, and then you know, there's a term sheet. The, the lawyers get together, and they, they do their best to codify that term sheet into a fuller form and as you're going through that process little wrinkles do appear and those need to be resolved and you know the commercial people at on either side will typically try and resolve those things on a commercial basis and could quite possibly be that they'll say well look if i give you something on this i'll take something on that yeah, yeah. There's another negotiation, and you know, so so the commercial deal, while probably staying the same, ultimately the sort of individual elements of the deal might sort of flex a bit. That's that's not unusual. So we, we touched briefly on on M and A, but talked mostly about licensing. And and M and A deals tend to look a lot more like licensing deals these days. So they're not just 
here's the cash, give me the asset or the company, and well, we're done. There's there's quite often deferred elements into the into these deals which have to be managed, and I guess both from a legal and a tax perspective, it's kind of easier for us. We'll just go, oh yeah, that happens in the future, and we we model it and we work out the terms. But but from your perspective, that's yeah. So from a, from a legal perspective, in life sciences deals, we almost always see deferred consideration, milestone-based payments. But you know, the difference between an M&A context and a licensing context, at least with the licensing context, the licensor still owns the asset. When in an M&A context, the um, selling shareholders have sold the business and the shares in, in the company is gone. And so making sure that the, you know, the, the, the drafting of when when is an, a, a deferred payment and what are the triggers that um, enable that payment? Uh, how that drafting works is 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 really important. In, in I mean, it's not unimportant in licensing. It's just it's it's even more important in an M and A transaction because the asset is no longer yours. It's just a contractual right to uh, to further payment. Whereas in a licensing deal, if you don't get that payment, you can always terminate the license. Yeah. But but one of the key issues that comes up all the time in relation to that deferred consideration aspect is what what is the tax treatment of that deferred milestone payment for the shareholders who who've sold that as that their shares but for which that that further milestone may never arise mm. and it's 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 a very common and can be a very sort of sticky um tax area clearly as you say those those who are receiving these want to understand how they're going to be taxed and really the one point here to to note is the risk of what we call a dry tax charge. Mm -hmm. So that is receiving a tax bill, having not had the money to pay that tax bill. And that is one thing exactly we're absolutely trying to avoid and is a, is a risk. And just very briefly on, on, on sort of how that can be a risk, because these, uh, these payments are deferred, but they are set out, um, they might be contingent on something happening. The tax man will look at, well, you know, how likely is it that you're going to receive these amounts? Can I calculate how much you're going to receive? So, for example, you, know, you, you will receive, if you hit this milestone, you know, £5 million. I can work out that figure. It's £5 million. You might be taxed on that. If it's unascertainable, i.e. a percentage of future sales, you don't know what that's going to be. The tax rules look at those things differently. So we're looking when we're looking at deferred consideration, we're thinking about contingencies, we're thinking about whether the amount that you're to receive is ascertainable or not. And there are techniques, if you do find yourself sort of caught in this in this corner of tax law, um, there are potential methods of structuring the deal um, uh, through loan notes or something similar that might address some of those issues. So, um, yes, it can be a very technical area. It is a, it is a common area and it's certainly something to be careful of. So if, if there's a milestone payment, which is you know, if, if, you, if the product is successful, to this extent, we'll pay you the five million, but if it isn't, we'll pay you nothing. Is that still an ascertainable amount? So that would strictly be an ascertainable amount because it's 
things tend to only be unascertainable if if they are a percentage of something or something that is truly unknown. And then and then we'd be looking at you know in more detail at, at the at the tax treatment depending on you know the conclusion of each of those each of those uh, questions. Yeah, lots to think about, and uh, great to get the different perspectives uh, on on things that are truly really important to deals. If we wrap up with one piece of advice um, um, on maybe the timing or things to think about um, when you're getting into a deal process, from our perspective, it's it's talk to us early, be prepped and ready, and or if you're not prepped and ready, be prepared to do the preparation before you go out. What what would you say to people? Let me see the term sheet before it's signed. For me, uh, lower expectations still. Uh, uh, think of tax um, and uh, talk to somebody um, uh, about uh, what that tax landscape looks like for you. Great insights there. Ollie, thanks for joining us on the show today. Colin, likewise, and um, look forward to speaking to you again. For more information on other Pharma Ventures podcasts, go to www.farmaventures.com forward slash podcast, where you can also subscribe. Pharma Ventures, the deal experts.